You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Renee Secor is a carnivore conservation advocate for the Rewilding Institute and Project Coyote, where she advocates for the conservation of carnivores and wild nature through rewilding and science-driven advocacy. It was in learning and connecting to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem where she developed a deep passion and understanding of the necessity of carnivores in the landscape. She spent a season studying winter ecology dynamics in Yellowstone National Park, observing the park's wolf packs, and learning firsthand the ecological importance of carnivores in the landscape. Today, much farther south from Yellowstone, a particular wolf has caught her attention as she advocates for Mexican wolves in the southwest. On this episode, you'll learn more about how wolves are moving in the Mogollon Rim region, a corridor design and advocacy program of the Rewilding Institute and several partners. I recently took the position as carnivore conservation advocate um, with the Rewilding Institute and uh, with Project Coyote as a kind of joint position between both organizations. Uh, I'm working directly under Dave Parsons with the Rewilding Institute, who, um, you know, has a long history Uh, with Lobo Recovery in the Southwest um, being, you know, the first coordinator for the reintroductory efforts uh, with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service back in the late 90s when they were reintroduced. Um, And so I've kind of jumped on working under him with this Lobo Recovery work, as well as, um, you know, carnivore conservation work nationally. Um, And so I've been kind of slowly, um, you know, jumping on board, getting up to speed on everything that's happening with Lobos of the Southwest um, and kind of, you know, stumbled upon the the map that track different radio colored wolves that are kind of moving through the landscape and kind of, you know, kind of have been watching their movements as I have been kind of advocating for them um, and starting to kind of get up to speed on all the factors that play into their recovery. One of the things that uh, a lot of people don't know about the Mexican Wolf Recovery Project is is this boundary called I-40, Interstate 40. Can you tell us what's weird about that? Because I've always thought that this was really weird, that the, that the wolves are really restricted and a lot of people will f- assume it's because of the road itself, but that's not exactly true, right? Yeah, it's yeah, not the full story. I mean, it definitely, you know, roads are huge impediments to uh, wildlife movement, as we know. And so it definitely is a physical barrier, but it's more than that for Lobos. It's actually a human constructed uh, barrier in the sense that, you know, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has defined the range of the Mexican gray wolf population to what we call the Mexican gray wolf experimental population area. And that's, you know, predefined area in New Mexico and Arizona in which we've decided Lobos can live within that area. But when they travel north of the I-40 boundary, uh, that's just, you know, not acceptable (laughs) to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So they actually will go out and um, capture those wolves and bring them south of the I-40 boundary. Um, So that northern boundary is is their limit. Um, We've actually seen this with a pretty, you know, infamous wolf called Anibis, 
who traveled over that northern um, I-40 boundary. I think it was in, you know, 2021. He had moved across that boundary and and north of Flagstaff and had been captured by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and then brought back down south and reintroduced, you know, re-released into the White Mountains. And then um, kind of being the stubborn wolf that he was, he ended up crossing again. Hmm. Um, and, you know, his story is um, a sad one that ended in his eventual um, death by a, um, a shooting incident in north of Flagstaff area. Um, so it's, you know, a tragic ending for him, but um, kind of a bold and stubborn wolf that did not want to listen to this, you know, constructed boundary that humans had made for him. Nature wants to do what it wants to do. And it does. Yep. You'd think Fish and Wildlife Service uh, would understand that. We are lucky enough uh, to have with us at the Rewilding Institute and for a long time now, Dave Parsons, who was heading up the whole wolf reintroduction program. It's great to have a mentor like that, right? It's amazing. Yeah. I um I think I've been kind of, you know, pinching myself in this position a little bit. Um so excited to be mentored by him. I had a call with him earlier today and I feel like every time I talk to him I get little, you know, tidbits of just historical knowledge on this population and this region and um he's a huge as- asset to the Rewilding Institute and to Project Coyote and to just Mexican gray wolf recovery on a whole. So it's not just that particular wolf that would like to uh, explore the northern climbs. Are you following any others <laughs> that are exhibiting any sort of stubbornness and willingness to uh, do their thing, actually, what they were born to do? Yeah, there's a particular wolf that I've been watching now for about a month um, who is following a very similar uh, path and uh, is making his way along the Mugion Rim and has kind of, you know, started that same kind of similar trek to what Anubis took and is making his way northwestward. You know, his he's radio collared, so we've been able to kind of see his movements. Um, he's numbered 1857. His name is actually, you know, because the coalition, the Lobo of the Southwest Coalition has a pup naming contest every year. Um, And so they have elementary school children create names for these pups and actually have a contest. And so he was actually named Infinity. um, And he is slowly kind of moving his way along this Muggion, this Muggion corridor. I find it just really interesting because it's, you know, when I came on at Project Coyote and the Rewilding Institute, I was introduced to, you know, this Lobo recovery project, as well as this um, Muggy on Wildway campaign project. I've been slowly kind of beginning to learn what both of these campaigns, what's happening with both of these campaigns and how I can contribute. And I feel like Infinity is kind of directly showing me this corridor and is moving through this corridor that I've been starting to study and starting to research how to protect. Um, and, and he's kind of showing me how crucial and how important it is for wolves to be able to disperse through this natural corridor that he's moving through. And so it's just kind of been, I feel like I'm getting maybe some subliminal messages from him, but you know, if we sit back and we kind of observe and, and listen, I think that these, these species they really show us what they need. Um, sometimes we're just a little hard-headed and and create these boundaries and these confines for them to live in. But um, yeah, I think Infinity is kind of showing that you know we need large swaths of interconnected habitats in order to roam freely and to breed and to um, survive and thrive in the wild. 
we talk about corridors like the the Mogian a lot, and, and in business, you you know you you tend to talk about something so much that it becomes a little theoretical more than like real. And so that's why Dave Foreman and others are always on us about getting on the ground, going out and seeing things, or in this case, paying attention to actual movements of actual wildlife through this quarter. I mean, it is important for, for a reason. The reason, one of the big reasons or one of the ones that we're using so people can understand why it's so important is wolves. And you're making that connection. And it reminded me yesterday that I was treating this like a theoretical way too much. When you started talking about your following this wolf and their exploits along the rim, I, I was like, yeah, that's what this is all about. You keep getting this daily reminder of what it really truly means, especially as a carnivore advocate and scientist. This is the real thing. This is the real deal. Yeah, I love the way that you put that, actually, because, you know, I've been slowly trying to grasp what the Mugion campaign means and what this corridor is. Um, and I've looked at tons of maps and I've I've read um Kim Crumbrow's uh, super detailed, you know, description of the region um, and kind of piecing all these parts together. And I think that um, Infinity's movement through the corridor, for some reason, was the thing that clicked and has kind of shown me firsthand, like, oh, this is what we're talking about. Like, this is the project that we are working on. It's directly related to this wolf's movement um, through the region. So, yeah, I think it's that like hands-on, on the ground. I've always been a hands-on learner, right? So like, <laughs> I think, um, yeah, his movement through the region has really just made the Mugion campaign really click for me and brought it to life for sure. You said both wolves that we've talked about today have followed the same basic path. And I suspect that if you kept watching different wolves doing the same thing, we're going to probably see the same general route because that's what the corridor is it's providing cover and 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 prey and and you know uh and, and somewhat privacy from humans as much as possible in mm -hmm. a certain narrow area that's what a corridor is so they're going to basically go in the same but have you learned anything or do you expect to learn anything more about the finer points of what it's like to be a wolf traveling through this area yeah i think I think that sitting back and, and watching uh, Infinity's movement will definitely tell us a little bit more about those, those finer points. I've been thinking of what rewilding is on, I guess, like a larger scale. You know, we call it like the three C's, cores, corridors, and carnivores, and the interconnected between those things, right? The, there's this core habitat that the Mexican gray wolves are thriving in, in the, in the Southwest. And then this corridor that is allowing them accessibility to, to more habitat and more range, which they need in order to survive and, and thrive. So I think, yeah, his movement is just kind of teaching us that natural corridor, showing us that natural corridor that exists. Yeah. is kind of highlighting the existence of this, of this natural corridor and the importance of this campaign. You must be worried about infinity running in its same end as the other wolf. How do we get rid of that idea that, man, if a wolf does cross 40, it's, it's automatically dead? I think that, and actually we know that when the U.S. Fish and Wild, Wildlife Service and when our agencies kind of reinforce the importance of these species and the importance of their protections, more people 
listen. And so we need good leadership from the top um, and we haven't gotten it (laughs) with Lobos. Studies will tell us that reinforcing when, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service reinforces the strictest protections for Mexican gray wolves and their endangered status, that we see decreases in poaching. You know, we see direct protection of the species on the ground. I do worry about Infinity's travel northward because I, I mean, with all Mexican gray wolves, we worried about po- we worry about poaching and, and kind of human cause mortality because it is the leading cause of mortality in the population. I would really love to see U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, you know, reinforce the strictest protections for for lobos on the ground. We also need to work on just kind of reframing coexistence and how people can coexist with wolves. And I think part of that is beginning to pull back the veil, which, you know, I'll, I'll mention the the Intercept article that came out this week that, you know, brought to light that Mexican wolves are not responsible for as many livestock predation events as they've historically been reported to have have caused. And so it's kind of, you know, we need to pull back the veil and show that, like, we can coexist with these wolves. Um, they aren't causing conflict like um, has been displayed and has like has been said and stated by our agencies, specifically the USDA Wildlife Services. You know, we need to learn how to live with them and we need to learn how to coexist with them in this landscape. They're meant to be here. Um, they should be able to roam freely and we need to learn how to live with the wildlife amongst us. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. It is, it's difficult. I mean, it's a remote area, and at the same time, uh, humans have total access to it. Like, I'm starting to see in other interests in my life, people talking about the Mogian. And I'm like, wait, how do you know about it? You, you, you talk <laughs> yourself into thinking you're the only one among a few people who really know about this place, but it is a very, very popular place for recreation of different kinds. You know, so there's a lot of access there. And to say, okay, well, this is a quarter. I imagine that scares some people like, wait, what's going to happen to my ability to mountain bike? What's going to happen to my ability to hunt and fish? Or I guess it's the same thing that you've been talking about, but it's a sure, it sounds like to me, a really big job of getting everybody to be cool with the fact that this is actually a good thing. This is a corridor. That's a, that's one of the reasons that you're so attracted to it as a hiker or mountain biker or whatever, as wolves are. You know, a lot of that work is really is long-term public education on on coexistence. And and we have a dark history when it comes to wolves in 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 the US. And so I think it's confronting that and and acknowledging how much of a, a mistake that was and a tragedy that was and and seeing what was lost when we extirpated, you know, wolves from the U.S. and trying to to come back from that and to heal. And I think it takes 
a lot of a lot of deep work. But one of the programs that we have is a Keeping It Wild youth education program. We try to start really young on educating um, young people about carnivores and how important they are to the landscape and rewilding and and what it means to rewild a landscape and allow you know these natural processes to rebound and how crucial carnivores are in the missing puzzle pieces of of ecosystems. I think it's it's really long-term work. I mean, you know, there's direct actions that we're doing that we're taking for Lobos daily um, when it comes to the recovery plan and, you know, the 10J management rule that just came out. And we're staying active and commenting on those things and engaging in those issues. Um, but we're also working on a longer-term strategy, which is coexistence and public education when it comes to learning to live um, with carnivores in the landscape. So... There's the short-term goals and the long-term goals, and and hopefully they synergistically kind of work together as we as we move forward. Is a wolf like Infinity when when they're moving north? Do you know yet if it's a pattern that they they are moving with a purpose in more of a straight line than a zigzag, or like what's it look like when a wolf like Infinity is moving? And you can tell they're on the move. They're searching. They're not. They're not doing territorial things as much as they're doing a travel thing. It's a little bit of a zigzag. <laughs> um, I mean, on the daily, a little bit of a zigzag. But when you look at telemetry, it kind of, you know, one day I'll was looking and, you know, he's in the Apache sick greaves and then he's starting to move north of the Apache sick greaves closer to kind of like the pine top region and, and the Apache reservation moving through that region. And so he's, you know, slowly just kind of moving on this on this map likely in search of you know a breeding female and and a place to start a pack and a new family and breed and 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 survive on the landscape yeah a little a little bit of a zigzag but but then again a predictable zigzag because we we do know where this natural corridor is um and so we can kind of predict that he's likely to try to stay in that you know in that protected corridor and not venture into you know, more urban or, or non-suitable habitat. The sad thing is we know there's not a mate waiting for him up north. Is there a possibility of seeking a mate further south, turning around and going back? Like what, how do you get worked up about watching him move north, knowing that probably he's looking for a mate and you know, he definitely is not going to find one. Yeah. It's a little disheartening, right? <laughs> like, I mean, I get, I think it's nerve wracking seeing him get closer to that I-40 boundary. Um, mm -hmm. But it also is disheartening that he's in search of something that he unfortunately is not going to find um, to the north. But I think it reiterates the need for allowing wolves to disperse um, in that direction and allowing them to expand their range, which they're, you know, right now not allowed to do. And so he would be able to find a mate if we kind of removed these human restraints that we've kind of created on the population. The idea that there's going to be wolves in Colorado, in the Rockies, eventually somebody's going to put two and two together and go, well, if these wolves from the South, a whole different kind of wolf <laughs> in the South is trying to go North. And of course, those wolves in Colorado are going to try to eventually come South if we let them. Mm -hmm. Is there a historical nose touching that had occurred? Yeah, yeah, there definitely was um, an interconnected kind of historical range of southern Colorado into New Mexico and Arizona. Um, and I believe that 
um, you know, and this is when I wish I had Dave Parsons on my shoulder, but I believe that um, <laughs> the uh, Mexican gray wolf range, you know, did go up into into Colorado. And, um, you know, with the reintroduction, there has been some talk and some advocate, advocacy for also introducing, you know, a subpopulation of Mexican gray wolves in Southern Colorado um, and kind of working to create this interconnectedness with um, the wolves in the Arizona and New Mexico. So that would be amazing. And, and something that we would, you know, strongly advocate for is, is expanding, expanding their range, you know, into its historical reaches. Going back to that arbitrary boundary that's been set, is there going to be any progress that we can count on in terms of that? I'm sure you've heard through the grapevine that, you know, at least the plans for overcoming that artificial boundary. We're going to continue to push for its removal. Um, and, and we have, even with our latest comments, um, you know, on the revision to the recovery plan that were just, you know, comment period just ended two weeks ago. And um, we reiterated the need for the removal of that boundary. And so as a coalition and as, you know, a lot of our partnering organizations were going to keep pushing for that boundary to be removed. You know, we did the same when we provided comments on the uh, 10J management rule, you know, stressing the need and the importance for that boundary to be removed. So the population has more room to grow and to expand, um, as well as, you know, we advocated for the removal of, you know, the population cap that was originally, you know, the new rule had it set at 325 wolves and they weren't going to allow more wolves than that. Um, that has since been removed and is a, a small victory in an update to the management rule, but there's a lot of other missing puzzle pieces when it comes to science-based reforms that are gonna be necessary in order for the uh, Lobos to really thrive in the Southwest. One of the thriving factors would have to be uh, safe passage, right? Like wildlife crossings. I would imagine people are thinking about that now. Well, I-40, if you know anything about an interstate in North America, those are big. It's not safe for people to cross those things. Uh, have you heard about any plans for wildlife crossings and, and have they been determined where the wolves would most likely cross? Because you can't just put one anywhere. Yeah, we, you know, at the Rewilding Institute, uh, in coordination with uh, Wildlands Wildland Network and in collaboration with them, have been working closely on, on wildlife crossing legislation. We've been advocating for some state bills that have, you know, in California, New York specifically, bills that will study where to put wildlife crossings. I would also love to see that in, you know, New Mexico and Arizona to identify locations for good wildlife crossings. I think I-40 would be one of the, you know, the major road roads that would need a wildlife crossing. But in order to find good placements for those, you do need good research um, to see the best location for where species are crossing um, and where there would be the most benefit to put one in place. Um, so we, you know, we'll definitely uh, coordinate and collaborate with Wildlands Network on this work, who's been leading the charge on wildlife crossings. And we have the um, Habitat Committee as part of the Lobo Coalition that is, you know, set up to identify uh, projects that kind of expand Lobo habitat and work to protect Lobo habitat in the Southwest. And that would be, you know, a crucial project for, for that committee as well. Now, people are probably thinking, maybe I want to know where the wolves are. And that's understandable. That's understandable just because I want to know, too. I would really love to have a little private GPS map 
uh, just to track the movements, but I am no harm and they are no harm to those wolves. And you guys can't give out locations, nor do you want, you know, exact data given out on wolf movements. I know that that's protected, but is there some way for people just that not involved with the project or the government or anything to be able to get an idea of things without putting the wolves in danger and feel like they they're kind of doing what you're doing when you're tracking infinity? Yeah, definitely. There's, um, you know, there's a generalized kind of flight location, you know, they take telemetry data of uh, the wolves that are radio collared and not every wolf is radio collared. So, you know, they take telemetry data um, and that's up on the Arizona Fish and Game website. And it's very generalized. The range of that location is is very generalized and that kind of, you know, protects their anonymity. And because sometimes it, it feels a little funny to to uh, to track a wolf that, you know, I almost wish there was a little bit more anonymity and, and he got to live the wildlife that he deserves to live. But for protection and research purposes, I do see the importance of, of the data. And yeah, individuals can, you know, you can go on the Arizona Fish and Game website and um, see them as they kind of update this data. I think do it about once a week. Um, I'm not positive on that. I would have to check, but you you'll see it kind of update and those those wolf locations kind of move over time. And it's 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 fun and it's interesting to to engage in that way and and to follow along in their movement. You can get the link to that because I'm going to make Renee share it with me uh, (laughs) by going to rewilding.org slash pod and looking for episode 91. It's a lot more established up in Yellowstone. People will tell you where the Lamar pack is. They'll just, mm-hmm. you know, because they're protected, they're in a protected area. You can know that stuff. And I know a lot of other people who, I mean, I've even had pe- guests here who really closely follow um, where they think the wolves ought to be and know the area so well in the Gila and, and, and Arizona that they do have sightings. If you could give everyone that experience of an interaction think of how many people you could turn to full-time advocates oh certainly some of the most profound life-changing moments in the course of my life were in yellowstone national park observing wolves um, and hanging out with the wolf watchers (laughs) in yellowstone and you can spot them by their line of spotting scopes (laughs) and wolf shirts and all (laughs) all the gear that they deck themselves out in those early uh, memories and you know my time at college in Montana studying uh, ecology, those were really profound moments that kind of changed the course of what I wanted to do with my life, right? I wanted to advocate for carnivores. How do people keep up with you and Dave Parsons' work and Project Coyote's work in this area, not just with wolves, because you guys are working on carnivores? Well, wouldn't people really be shocked to know that the same corridor we're talking about used to be a jaguar corridor as well and could be again? (laughs) Yes. Don't tell all the people who are freaked out about wolves that we don't need to tell them about jaguars yet, but. I know. Maybe we'll keep that on the DL for (laughs) for a minute. (laughs) Um, I would follow the Rewilding Institute on all social media platforms, as well as um, uh, Project Coyote and sign up for, you know, the E-teams and email notifications from both organizations. We, you know, work to update our supporters with, you know, any new news that's coming out about Lobos um, and about, you know, all wolves. We have a Protecting America's Wolves campaign and, and working to relist the Northern Rockies wolves um, right now as well. And so, 
you can stay engaged and follow along. And we usually, you know, we'll send out action alerts and kind of equip our supporters with action steps that they can take to engage on these issues. Renee, thanks so much for taking the time to do this last minute interview. And I really, really look forward to getting updates from you. And I think people will too here on the podcast and also on both sites, projectcoyote.org and rewilding.org. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Jack. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.